But I think the biggest thing of importance when looking at my weaknesses is that you're able to be critical about them, whatever they are. So you're able to take an honest look and ask yourself what you're weak at and how you can improve. And I think that's really difficult and it should be for most people because most people don't, don't normally want to see themselves as flawed or weak or capable of, of tons and tons of errors. But if you can't take a critical look, then you can never really improve. Welcome to A Life of Freedom podcast, your source of inspiration and information on how and why you should choose to pursue your own happiness, pursue your passion, and design a life that fulfills you and makes it your own. And now here's your host, Ayesh LKZ. This is episode six of season one. Today we are talking with professional poker player, Melanie Beisner. Let's get to the show. How did you got started in poker? I was in, I guess I was in high school when I first um, came across poker. My younger brother was playing online and he was having a lot of success. Like this, you know, he was 16 and he had won like $50,000 or something playing online poker. And I was just like, what is happening here? Like if my little brother can do it, of course I could do it. So I kind of got hooked that way. And um, I remember I played a tournament I was working at a restaurant and I got invited to play this tournament in one of my coworkers garage uh, garages. And um, he was, you know, we were just like pretty young. Like I wasn't able to drink. I think I was 17 at the time. And like, we were in someone's garage playing poker and drinking beer. And I just like thought I was extremely cool. And I won this tournament without really knowing what I was doing. I kind of just thought it was like, cool and I was with the boys and like hanging and I just won the tournament for like 250 bucks or something like that. And I thought I was incredible and I was just like totally bitten by this bug. And I I didn't know at the time that it was just sheer luck and that I didn't really know what I was doing. So in college, I sort of proceeded to lose a lot of money slowly uh, playing online. I played in a little dorm game as well. And um, this continued on for like a year and a half or so. And I was just very, very stubborn and kind of refused to quit. And so eventually, all of this knowledge that I had been subliminally acquiring kind of clicked. And I started turning that loss into a win. And that kind of like took off from there. And I started winning like pretty significant amounts of money. So I was able to, you know, quit my part time job and I was able to support myself through school and all this stuff. And then um, after I graduated college, I kind of found out about the whole live world of poker, the tours and big money and all of this stuff. And so I started traveling around playing these live events. And then I eventually got sponsored by Full Tilt, which was at the time the second biggest poker company. And I thought it was a pretty cool life to get paid to travel around the world playing cards. And that was kind of how my career took hold in the early days. Who did you want to become as a child before deciding? <laughs> I really don't think I had any idea. I was I was really into the arts as a kid. I still am. And my dream at the, as a kid was to be uh, on Broadway and to do musical theater. So in musical theater, there's not like 
there's not really like the same kind of big stars as there are like in pop music or in the movies or whatever. Um, it's just like a lot of different people with incredible talent. So I don't know if there was like one specific person I wanted to be, but that was kind of the life I was envisioning for myself as a performer. I had a ton of stage fright actually when I was growing up. So I'm not sure how I thought I was going to overcome that, but I, I would say not a, not a specific person, but I, I thought I would, I would be doing musical theater. Uh, what's your greatest strength and your weakness and how did those help in your poker career? I would say that my, uh, my first instinct when you ask me that is, how can my greatest weakness have helped me? I just think that everyone will have weaknesses and yeah. the strength is learning from the weaknesses. I guess my greatest strength is logical reasoning, being able to kind of intuitively put the puzzle together. And I sort of just understood when things weren't making sense or when my opponent's story didn't, didn't really line up with what they were doing. I also had a pretty good savvy for reading people. So I could, I think I had a, a better ability than most people to determine if, if someone was lying or telling the truth. That was definitely helpful with poker. So I was able to kind of make sense of things and put them together and, and manipulate that information to my advantage. And I think my biggest weakness, which I guess ended up helping me, was being stubborn because that is what kind of led me to develop my poker skill in the first place. Like if I had just quit when I lost like 100 bucks or 200 bucks, that kind of would have been the end of it. But I was just really stubborn. So I continued to lose money until I eventually won money. So that, that was kind of instrumental in the development of my career. But I would say it ended up being a hindrance because it was tough, I think, to, I think to adapt as quickly as I would have liked to because I was very stubborn. I was like, I'm, what I'm doing is right. Why would I change whatever they are? And it would take so a lot of data or take an honest look, discussion with and players or what you're weak at and how you can improve. And I think that's really difficult. And it should but be for most people was both a, because most people don't, don't normally want to see themselves as flawed or weak or capable of, of tons and tons of errors. But if you can't take a critical look, then you can never really improve. So I thought that was pretty useful. Okay. So your greatest strength is that you have logical reasoning and the weakness is stubbornness. I think so. <laughs> so how would you say if you didn't have those two qualities, how your life would turn out to be, right? Hard to say. I think I would, I would be a less logically oriented person and maybe more willing to admit that I'm wrong or willing to change stuff. I mean, adaptability is huge in poker, but I think without the logical reasoning, I think I would probably act more emotionally, which is, I think, what the majority of people end up doing. I think a lot of people will end up taking an action or speaking to somebody or making a decision or whatever guided by like intuition and emotion rather than by logical analysis. And you can tell that people do that all the time because they, they underestimate the likelihood of, you know, bad scenarios happening, or they, they don't view things in terms of like probabilistic expectation, but rather in how they're feeling at the current moment. Like an example I like to use is when somebody has one of those awful events happen to them that, you know, is unlikely to happen, but given a particular span of time will happen at some point, like, you know, getting a flat tire or getting, uh, missing a train or whatever, like just those things are, are guaranteed to happen at some point. 
And rather than people kind of being dispassionate about them, thinking like, well, you know, one of these was bound to happen to me this year. And like, now it's happening. They think like that God hates them and that the world is against them and that like nothing can go right for them. So I I think I might fall into more of those traps if I didn't have that asset. As is, I think it's very helpful to to temper my emotions. Like often I'll I'll catch myself thinking emotionally about something, but I'll be able to temper that by thinking like, well, let's just reason this out. Does this make sense for this person to act this way? Why are you really upset? Is is talking back to them in a mean tone going to get you what you want, et cetera, et cetera? I'd probably have less navigational ability in the world than I do today and, and be a little more subject to emotional impulses. Okay. Who was your inspiration in poker? Who was my inspiration in poker? I think my inspiration was the person that was the furthest away from how I was playing. So I came to poker playing a style that was kind of like a female stereotypical style, very passive and conservative and, you know, not wanting to risk too much and so on and so forth. And um, at the time when I was playing online on the highest stakes that uh, the, the, the biggest poker operator was running, and I was poker stars, and they were running a $25, $50 cash game online at the time, there was this kind of online legend, and his name was Hollingall. His uh, real name was Frederick Holling. And this guy would just be involved in the most absurd situations you could ever imagine. Like he would just run the craziest bluffs and make the most absurd call downs and just like, the wildest, craziest, most aggressive poker you've ever seen. And I was just like obsessed with this. I would like read his hands and I would just think like, oh my God, how could this guy do this to his opponents? Like, wow, I was just so, so, so impressed. And he played the opposite of me. You know, he was like fearless and wildly aggressive and a total loose cannon. And I thought that that was just so cool because it was so different than what I felt like I was naturally able to do. And that really helped me kind of bridge the gap and become more of an aggressive, more of a fearless player by looking up to him. I don't know if I ever ended up meeting him, uh, maybe like once, I think, but he, I don't think he stayed really in the poker world. But at the time he was the coolest figure. Just like think of, think of somebody like some online legend of some game that you're playing. That was the guy. What are the most memorable stories that you had in your tournaments or in cash games. Uh, Can you share like maybe one or two stories? Sure. One of them is kind of recent. I played in a cash game on TV uh, called Poker After Dark just a couple years ago. Um, It was a women's night and I wasn't actually expected to play on that episode. And one of the women who is a, who's been around a long time in poker, her name is Kathy Liebert. She called me and kind of asked me what I thought about the lineup and how she should play and so on and so forth. So I gave her my thoughts. And um, I told her that I don't think it would be in her best interest to be super assertive and like trying to be ultra aggressive versus a lot of women who I thought were very capable and aggressive themselves. So I told her that she should play pretty solid starting hands. And, and uh, that's, that's hard to take advantage of. And poker, if you play strong starting hands, then you're going to make strong hands more often than your opponent. And that's hard to take advantage of. Um, so that's kind of like a good strategy. If you think you're up against better players, you won't get into as difficult of situations if you play strong starting hands. So that's what I was telling her. And then it turned out that I actually did kind of last minute get invited to be on the show and played against her. 
And I ended up playing in a huge pot against her where she did exactly what I told her not to do. She was playing a weak starting hand. She was playing it really aggressively. She was kind of like kamikaze bluffing. And so I ended up being able to make this call down in a very important spot because of that kind of knowledge that I had of her. So it, it worked out very well for me. And that was probably the biggest cash game pot that I'd, I'd ever played. I think it was, it might've been like a $70,000 pot, maybe more, maybe something, something like that. Maybe the pot at the end was like 90,000. I don't remember exactly what the, what the size was, but it was huge. And another story, another story, I guess another cool story is from the, one of the first tournaments that I ever played, which was at the European Poker Tour in Prague, where it, it was the, the women's event. And I, I really hadn't ever played like a women's event live and I hadn't done really anything but play online. And this was my first title, this, this European Poker Tour Prague women's event. And I was very, very proud of myself because I had you know started to make kind of these friends in the poker world and they thought very highly of my skill level. And I was really kind of excited to prove that I could do it in a real situation, <laughs> not, just, not just online behind a screen. And I was able to do it. And this was, that was one of the greatest moments of my career. It wasn't like a ton of money. It was just a small event. And um, it wasn't, you know, a main event or anything. It was just, just like this small women's tournament. But I remember feeling very, very proud of myself that I had kind of been, a, I, I, I set out to do it and I did it and I felt that I deserved it. And the whole, the whole thing, it all kind of lined up really nicely, which doesn't always happen in poker. You don't always get what you think you deserve. And things can really like not go your way. So that's, that's another one, just kind of like a, like the first, the first one that I won was, was really important to me. What is your favorite quote that you live by and how did it inspire? I think it's a pro, I'm actually going to look it up so I don't mess it up. One of my favorites is a super long Aldous Huxley quote, but I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go through that one because it's very long and exists existentialist. The one that I think is pretty inspiring to me is if you will it, it is not a dream. And um, this is a, I think it's from Theodore Herzl. He was a famous leader uh, when Israel was created. And I, I think this was, uh, when did he say, when did he say this? Um, this was, this is something to do with the Israeli Declaration of Independence, like ages and ages ago. But I just really irrespective of like what it's related to, I always just thought it was so true. If you will it, it is not a dream. If you can, you can bring things that you want into reality. And I think I've always kind of felt like when I really want something, I can be very resourceful about it. And I think most people are more resourceful than they really think they are. I think that, that often if someone really doesn't want to do something, you'll find them looking for reasoning or excuses or being like, I can't possibly, but somebody who really, really wants to do something will look for the means to do so. And so that's, that's been kind of instrumental to me to realize what the things are that I want and what I don't want, because if I really do want something, I will find a way where there is a will, there is a way you could use that one too. Those are kind of some of my favorites. Okay. How does playing poker makes you feel? That's a complicated one because it can be the highest of highs and it can be the lowest of lows. You know, when you lose, you, you feel like the world is against you and 
Like, how could I not have won in this thought? Or like, you know, if you make a bad decision, then it's worse because then you feel kind of like you let yourself down with your capability. And then when you win and things go right, you feel like, you know, you can see the matrix and you're a master of the universe and you know exactly what every person is going to do and when and how and how to take advantage of them. You feel like you're playing almost a different game than, than they are. So I would say at its worst, it can be very demoralizing. <laughs> and um, at its best, it can be extremely exhilarating and satisfying. I think it's kind of like any other game that you would master. Um, having mastery of something and, and executing to that mastery is, is very satisfying. Okay. You talk about mastery. How many hours or how many hands that one should have played to like to be considered a professional? The hands really won't determine the, the pro, but it will. But I, I definitely have spent 10,000 hours, you know, that hot number many times over. I probably played like 4 million hands of poker, somewhere between like 3 and 4 million hands. Could be more, could be, could be like 5 million hands. I think once when I checked, I think I had played 1.5 million on Poker Stars, and I knew I played like at least another million on Full Tilt. And that was when I was like really playing online. So after that, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine having played less than, than 3 million. It's probably closer to 4 or 5 million. But I think if you, if you play a million hands, for sure. He will be at a high skill level. But it's not always how many hands you play or how many hours you spend playing, but it's kind of the quality of your play and your focus and your decision making. Because I know a lot of people that can spend hours and hours and hours playing, but they treat it kind of like gambling and recreation. And they're not really sitting there focused, trying to read their opponent's hands. They're just kind of like clicking buttons and, and messing around. Same when they go to the casino in real life. So if you're super focused, I mean, you could probably do it in, in way fewer hands than that. But I think it's definitely the quality of the play and rather than the length of, of time and how you study and how you approach the game. Okay. So now do you play poker more online? Well, right now, definitely online because uh, live is not really a super viable option. I live in Los Angeles. And while previously I used to spend a lot of time abroad in Canada and elsewhere to play online and play live, that's not really so feasible right now with travel and COVID and so on. So live is not really so much of an option. I do play some online and I uh, coach students who are also playing online. So I spend a decent amount of time uh, coaching them and a decent amount of time playing myself online. And hopefully live will be a viable option at some point in the future. Okay. How would you say that your life is affected by code? Yeah, just the, the dirt of, of live poker. You know, the World Series of Poker normally happens every year in June, but it didn't happen this year. You know, it was only online. And because of the legality issues in the United States, some states you can play in, some states you can't. It's not really like the same thing, like competing with people all over the world. So that has definitely been a huge effect. And then just like not being able to play like live in private games or like in, you know, events that has really been kind of sad that that whole landscape has disappeared. My students also haven't been able to play live. And I think the live arena is just a little more interesting personally because you get to make use of that information, how a person is looking, how a person is feeling, the, the psychology and the vibe and the tells and all of that, that's all very, very real and very important to poker. So when you play online, you have the ease of access, right? You have, you just are in your PJs with your dinner and you can play online. 
but you miss a layer of information that I think is available to you live. So I, I haven't had that and neither have my students, but but in terms of things that you can still do during COVID, like online poker is a great option. Uh, you talk about feeling down when losing poker. Like how do you handle tilt like that? And how do you overcome and get into the mindset of it? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's something that I think is just a lifelong struggle for poker players. I don't think you're ever finished working on that. For me, there's a couple of things that I do. Uh, one, I have a stop loss. So I know that if I get buried in a game too far, I know that the quality of my play will deteriorate. And also, it's just like a shitty mindset to be in. Like if I'm stuck, let's say, three buy-ins or something in a cash game where I know I'm a huge favorite and I love the game and so on and so forth, my mentality for the next few hours is just like, oh my God, I need to get back to even. Oh my God, this is terrible. How could this idiot beat me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just like not a not a good not a good state to continue playing in. So I know that at some point um, after I've lost uh, a certain amount, my level will drop. So I try to avoid playing during when my level is dropped. I try to do everything I can to keep my A game level. Um, so that's the first thing, and I think that's really the most important thing. And conversely, I try to extend my sessions when I'm when I'm winning. A lot of people have really short winning sessions and really long losing sessions, and it's really the opposite. You should keep your losing sessions as short as you can because you're playing shitty. Even if even if you're playing well and things are going worse, you're st- like just from luck, you're still not ever going to be able to play as great as you can when you're winning. So people should keep their losing sessions short and their winning sessions long because then their opponents are feeling the exact opposite. So that's the first thing I do. And the second thing I do is I have a friend who kind of always knows how to make me laugh and take the edge off and stuff like that. And so I will often just send him a message when things are going poorly and I'm not feeling good about my game or whatever. Because poker is really you against the world. It's just you against all the other players. And it's often really helpful, I think, to have someone on your side or to feel like someone's on your side. And what I advise my students to do is to kind of just like test this stuff out for themselves because it doesn't really matter if it's like silly or unusual, like It matters that you feel you have something you can rely on when you start getting into a suboptimal mental state. If you have something you know to rely on that works, like you know if you take a 10-minute break and a walk and so on and so forth, you know you'll feel better because you've tested this multiple times before and you know that it works. Now you have something that you feel like you can go to rather than being frazzled and like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. That doesn't really help you. So I like to test out different, just random different strategies with my students. So it doesn't really matter what the thing is that works. It matters that you find something that works to kind of take you off the edge. And a lot of time, that's just quitting the game. And that's totally okay. Okay. I uh, like started playing poker two months ago. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. The thing is, if I'm in big, I I usually do one tenth percent losing. So if I in big like one dollar pot or something i usually quit the table so it's like i don't i think i i don't want to lose this and i need to get the profit so yeah that's, <laughs> that's what i do that's very common the, yeah but the, like if when i'm losing so i would be staying in that thing so how would you say what, what to do yeah it's the so you're doing exactly what i said like a lot of the time people will like want to win and like lock up the win but if you if you want to learn i mean it depends on the games that you're playing if you feel like you have 
a skill advantage on your opponents, then you want to keep playing. You, you don't want to be afraid of losing what you won. You want to win more. If you are winning and playing well, then your opponents are losing and they're feeling worse about their game. And that is a situation that you probably want to extend. If you are playing in a game where if you win, you feel like you're going to lose. If you don't, or you feel like if you win X amount of money, you're afraid that you're going to lose it back. You're probably not in the right game. You're probably in a game that's too advanced for you or too high stakes for you or whatever. It's a fallacy to assume that as soon as you win a pot or whatever, that you can just book that win because your whole career, so to speak, is going to be like one long session. And the idea that you can just start and stop it and somehow capture those wins is, is not accurate. Like if that were to happen, for example, at a blackjack table, if you were to just like win every time you were up a hundred dollars and just leave that theoretically, like you should win a hundred dollars every time, but it's not going to happen. You're going to lose sometimes you're going to go below or whatever. So you can't actually control where you start and stop that. You want to treat it all as like one, one long session, your whole, your whole life essentially. And I think that you'll find if you challenge yourself to play, you know, your regular game and not feel like afraid that you're going to lose it back, you'll be able to go on like huge winning sessions rather than just like only win one buy-in. But if you lose, you'll lose a bunch more because you're keeping playing, trying to, to, to get up. You want to keep your, if you, I would argue that if you lose one buy-in, like if you, if you lose your whole buy-in, you could stop. Or if you lose two buy-ins, you could stop. But if you win, you should play until you feel like you're not playing well anymore. You should definitely be trying to extend your winning sessions. That, that, that would definitely be my first advice. Okay. Also, because also you're, it's going to be hard to learn as much if you're always just cutting your sessions so short every time you win something. Uh, what would be a perfect day for you? A perfect day. A perfect day truly would probably not involve poker because poker is, is very much work. You treat it as a job. And, and I think some of the great things about poker is that it affords you a lot of freedom outside of poker. So a great day to me would probably be like just a bunch of leisure activities, like going for a hike and getting a massage and going out to like an amazing dinner and stuff like that. I really, really, really appreciate nature. And I uh, want to live someday kind of like in the country and grow my own food and have a beach view and like stuff like that. I've lived in a big city my whole life. And, and I really, uh, I feel like the quality of life is higher when you're out in nature. So it involves something like that. And then I am a huge, 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 huge foodie. I've traveled all around the world eating at some of the most amazing restaurants and I just appreciate it so much um, in, in every form, you know, the highest Michelin star tasting menus and then like random hole in the wall, like food trucks and stuff like that. So I would, it would definitely involve like a, a food tour of some kind, the, the best day in the world, I guess. Okay, good. Maybe we'll go to some food questions. So <laughs> can you like name... Uh, top five restaurants and your favorite top five restaurants um so my first would be blue hill this is a restaurant in new york it's been on the world top 50 list for some time and um i was so blown away when i went they grow all their own vegetables they have a farm and they grow all their own vegetables on the farm and they source their own meat kind of from their network of farms in the area and 
it's just so beautifully done. The the whole idea behind the restaurant is really honoring the seasons and the ingredients and like the natural bounty of the earth and all all that stuff. And so the menu is really not a menu. The menu is just a booklet of what is in season. So in December, you'll, you know, you'll see just like the different vegetables that are in season and stuff like that. January will be different and February will be different and so on and so forth. And I just had the most beautiful experience there every time I went. That'd be number one. Number two, number two, I would probably say is Alinea, which is a famous restaurant in Chicago. This guy is, is very whimsical and likes to play with molecular gastronomy. And there was a course where you would like, you would like kind of blow a bubble with something and then let it pop on your face. And then you would peel it off. There, There was one like that. And there was one where they, they took a big white chocolate orb and they smashed it on your table and like painted around your table and you like ate it up off the table just really whimsical stuff like that after that um there was a restaurant in uh, barcelona called tickets that i really like it's pretty casual but it's it's done by a famous chef his name is ferran adrian he did el bulli which was like the most famous restaurant molecular gastronomy in the world i never went at the time but he opened this kind of casual restaurant in barcelona and it's just like it's just like tapas, but it's kind of exquisite tapas. It's really, really, really inventive and creative. And like the whole atmosphere is very, very low key and the ingredients are, are out of this world. Number four is probably a restaurant in Los Angeles called Dialogue. And it's from a guy who used to work at, Al- at Alinea. And his concept is kind of like similar, like a seasonal tasting menu with cool stuff. But this guy is just like super laid back. And his, his whole idea is to, is to be very intimate with the diners and talk with them about their food and their experiences. And he involves a lot of things like childhood memories and he plays with nostalgia and, and, and symbolism and stuff in his, in his food. So I love that. And number five, what is number five going to be? You know, number five is actually going to be a place in Japan that is kind of like this hole in the wall. It's called... Abora Soba. It's in Ginza, which is their like kind of businessy, elegant district. And um, it's just like a hole in the wall. You order from a machine. It's $7. And the concept is ramen, but no soup. So it, the word translates to oil noodle. And what's so special about it is that when you think of ramen and you think of the broth, it has all this umami flavor to it. It's like, it's so rich and deep. And imagine all of that flavor just kind of like condensed into like a little bit of an oily kind of sauce. And you mix that with the noodles and you put vinegar and chili oil on it and you kind of mix it all together. And it is just amazing. When I went there, I thought I had died and gone to heaven and, you know, ate there for like the next three meals. And we had, you know, we'd been going around Japan eating all of this like expensive sushi and all this stuff. And all I wanted to do was have this $7 bowl of noodles. That I think that would also make my top five. So, Highly uh, recommend all five of those. If we could have an unlimited supply of uh, a certain food for like next 50 years, what would you choose? Thank you for listening to the first half of our conversation. The second half will be published next week. Please leave a review and subscribe from wherever you listen to our podcast. See you next time.